Wrestling. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kevin McGuigan, and I'll be your host. We're at episode nine. In this episode, I talk with former Upper Darby High School wrestler Zach Pierce. A Pennsylvania State Championship qualifier in high school, Zach has become a successful entrepreneur in real estate and product development. He specializes in multifamily real estate investments. Zach has closed over 250 transactions, which have valued at more than $3 billion. Zach has a passion for the sport of wrestling and continues to give back as a coach and a mentor in underserved communities. He is planning an event for this summer that will bring to Philadelphia Olympic gold medalist Henry Cejudo and NCAA champion AJ Ferrari. All right. Hey, Zach, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's good to talk to you, Kev, as always. Yeah. Hey, we go way back, right? Um, when did we first meet? I think you were in ninth grade at Upper Darby High School. I think we met the summer going into my sophomore year okay. is when I got back into high school wrestling. Did you wrestle before that? Let's go I back did. a little so bit. I, yeah. yeah, I did. So I started wrestling when I was seven. And I wrestled up through, uh, I guess, about eighth grade. And then when I got to high school, uh, you know, the wheels kind of came off a little bit, <laughs> just in general. And uh, so I didn't wrestle. And then uh, I, I, when I was the summer heading into my sophomore year, I went away to a camp. At that camp, you had to pick some sports. So I picked wrestling as a sport, found out that I was doing pretty well. So when I came back, I decided to join the team at, at Upper Darby. And you were running Summer Wrestlers Make Winter Champions. Yeah, our uh, summer program, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where we met. Okay. Yes. And I I remember those vividly. I mean, we had a great time uh running around the uh cemetery across from the street from the high school. And and uh we had guys from all over uh southeastern Pennsylvania coming into that room, I believe, in the summer. Yeah, we did. And I remember some I remember Mike Childs being there and you know, some a lot of lower Marion guys would come, the occasional Conestoga, Radner groups would come. Uh, it was great. We did. We had a nice, I think, pretty crowded room for summer wrestling. So <clears throat> some of those, you know, you mentioned Mike Giles, very good wrestler. Um, how did you feel being in that room, you know, getting back into the sport, maybe uh, not necessarily a novice, but not at that level yet? Yeah, I mean, I was getting my butt kicked. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it was interesting coming back because there were, I mean, we had some, just some hammers in that room, even just the upper Derby kids alone between you know, Wayne Helms and Chris Rickards and some of these, some of these guys that I had to roll around with, I was getting my butt kicked in the beginning. Um, but you know, it's funny, as you mentioned, the cemetery, that is kind of the most memorable part of those sessions. Cause that's kind of where I learned about running. You were always a member, you were a, a triathlete yes, at the yes, time, right? Yeah, yeah. And I remember you would always say, I won't make you do anything. I won't ask you to do anything that I can't do. <laughs> and that was a pretty high test. So I remember those uh, those cemetery runs, which were two point one miles, I believe, around that cemetery. Yeah, I think and, so. Yeah. And I was in the I was typically at the end of the pack. You know, when I first got back, I had never ran or done anything. I was always at the end of the pack, and that I remember that steel road run, the one day when it finally clicked, and uh, Dennis Morgan, who always who he always won those those runs. And I remember trying to chase him down as we were getting to the school, and I passed everybody else. And that was the first. That's where I turned the corner and realized, oh my gosh, I can I can keep up with these guys running. And it was on that cemetery where where where, where men were made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you 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 turned the corner there, and you started to 
to, uh, you know, get a lot better on the mat from that, from the conditioning. And the... Sure. So, so what, so that was your sophomore year, but going into your sophomore year, um, tell me about your high school career from that point on. Yeah. Well, I've been backing up a notch, right. Because I think that, you know, part of my story as it relates to wrestling is, you know, it, it's been an evolution of a person, of, of a young man that I think was really shaped by the principles that make good wrestlers. So, you know, coming into uh, starting back in high school wrestling, see, I, I had failed my first freshman year in high school. So back, even though I backed up to middle school, I just had a troubled upbringing. You know, I had a ton of abuse in my, in my household and uh, I think my parents were figuring out their own stuff. And my mom was at the time and right. uh, which got me in some tough situations with stepdads where I was getting my butt kicked and, and a lot of abuse and all that good stuff. So I was a pretty crazy kid, even in middle school, so much so that they put me in the alternative program, which was the bad kid class in seventh grade. Right. And uh, to this day, Lee Erweiler, who's the teacher that ran that class is still a dear friend of mine. I mean, he's, He's in his in his seventies, and I go see him in South Philly at his house down there now, and just still a really really good friend and a great man. And then as I uh, I got to high school, I think things the, the pressures and just all the things you deal with as a fourteen year old kid and with crazy stuff going on at home. I failed my freshman year in high school. I barely scooted through my second freshman year, and that is where my uncle John really at that point stepped into my life and just kind of threw me a lifeline and said, "Hey, if you ever want to get together and talk." I'd, I'd love to. And I said, yes, please. I'm kind of tired of this stuff. And so he stepped into my life. He's the one that sent me away. It was called Canico Camps in Missouri. And I spent three weeks there and it was, it was a Christian based camp. They didn't kind of beat you over the head with it, but it was definitely an underlying Christian values. And, and you get out in the Midwest, man, everyone's nice. And as I was thinking about the guys I was running the streets with, you know, when I was 11, 12 years old, I was running the streets till one, two o'clock in the morning as a kid. And, you know, now as a, as a father that has young kids, I can't imagine them doing what I was doing. Right. When you're talking uh, running the streets, we're talking, you know, streets up for Darby down, down the maybe 69th street area. And yeah, started out down in like West Stonehurst. Yeah, yeah. Down Stonehurst on 69th street. And then I moved to Bywood and yeah, man, you're talking about running around with a, a tough group of kids, you know, doing some things that uh, could get you in a lot of trouble at times. And, uh, but I, you know, I went to that camp. It was just such an epiphany for me because that's where I realized one, how genuinely nice all these people were. And it was just, it was astonishing. I had never been around such a collection of just nice, genuine, authentic people. And it made me realize uh, my friends that I was hanging with at home probably weren't heading the right direction. And I also got a little bit of confidence because, you know, Pennsylvania is a, you know, the best wrestling state in the country. So when I go out to Missouri and I, I was beating up on all those kids out there, even with my limited Pennsylvania resume, I was still able to compete and, and beat most of those kids my age, my weight class. So coming back up at Darby, I think I was thinking I'm going to be an I'm going to be a, a prodigy here. I'm going to I'm going to step yeah, into this right. thing and be a, a young champ. But that wasn't the case. It was very humbling to get into the room and and uh, really start putting in the work to be able to to compete just in our wrestling room. But then of course to compete, uh, you know, at the high school level. So that year, that was nineteen. 19- 94 or 95 maybe that yeah I graduated I graduated in high school in 96 so that would have been 94 and I was uh my sophomore year I ended up being an undefeated JV wrestler behind Wayne Helms so I had Wayne Helms I had Chris Rickards and I had Jason Richter (laughs) so well that that team that 94 team if I remember correctly was the Central League champions that was the first time they won in over 15 years and 
and you were you were part of that, right? Yeah, it was. We had an unbelievable lineup of just a just a well-rounded team of hardworking young kids, and uh, yeah, it was it was great to be a part of that. That match, as you remember, was electric. It was unbelievably exciting, and uh, and yeah, that was uh, I, I went undefeated as a JV wrestler, which gave me confidence into my junior year that I belonged. Yeah. So so then you move into jun- junior year, senior year. Yes. Then I go in my into my junior year. <clears throat> made the varsity team. Wayne graduated, and I had to I had to wrestle off for the spot and won the spot every week. And uh, you know it's funny, Kev, because at that point I um, you know I, I had made it so far from where I had come from that I think I felt like varsity was it. Like my goals weren't very high. You know I was competing on the varsity level. I was the starter. Um, and I don't know if you recall, but I went into like the postseason with my thumbs wrapped and my ankles wrapped. I had all this stuff wrapped. And, and it was just, I just, you know, it was just funny that I recall thinking like, looking back on it, like, man, what a, what a whip I was being, like just being so soft. <laughs> and I think that at the end of that, you know, I, I made it to the region consolation finals to make it to the district tournament. And I had to wrestle Haverford kid I'd beaten five times before. And if you recall, I, I love, I still love a good splatal and using that to transition into different positions. So I actually splatled and pinned myself oh in the my consolation goodness. finals and didn't make it to districts. One of the most humiliating points of my life. And anyone, any wrestler that can imagine pinning themselves or seeing somebody do it, it's a pretty embarrassing moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So then you go into the summer, like, oh man, now what? Yeah, well, I finished that year. I mean, my record wasn't bad. I believe I was like 24 and 10. So I had a pretty good wrestler. I was ranked, um, but I just didn't make it out of, out of sections. And I recall, you know, I, I, Kevin, I apologize. I can't remember if it was you or, or Steve Bell, but somebody's talking with me and saying, like, what are you trying to do? This is your senior year. What are you, what are you trying to accomplish? And I said, well, you know, I want to make it to the state tournament and be one of the best kids in the state. And, uh, and the line back to me was, well, you know, all of these kids at the state level have typically been wrestling since they were in kindergarten. A lot of them are one sport athletes, and they've dedicated their, their last 12 years to this goal that you're trying to achieve. And, you know, you sort of were in wrestling, not in wrestling, and, and came in late. It's going to be very difficult for you to catch these guys on technique. But the one thing you can control is outworking them and being in better shape and being, you know, physically dominant if you're lacking a little bit in the technique side. So that's, that just clicked for me. It seemed really logical. <laughs> it was something. Yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense. And it sounds, that sounds like a Steve Bell who uh, assistant coach at Upper every high school at yeah. the time. That sounds uh, I, like a statement coming from him. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I, it, it's hard to catch up on technique at that stage in your career when you're going up against guys that have been wrestling their whole lives. And like you said, you had a, you know, rocky uh, childhood and you were in and out of the sport and really got, got your head back into it when you were in 10th grade. So we're talking that's, this is only two years later. So. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, that was, um, you know, we started going down to George wrestling, George Mason wrestling camps. I remember heading into my senior year, I'd wrestle the, uh, the Virginia state champ and we were, and somehow they let us wrestle to a tie. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how that, I don't know why they did that, but I remember thinking, man, I'm like hanging with these guys, you know, at the higher levels. And so going into my senior year, I really took that to heart. I just started being fanatical about specifically running. 
Yeah, I had lucky running shoes, which I'm paying for today with my knees and my hips. But you know, I would I would just rip off just miles and miles and miles of running. So even to the, to the extent that Bob Martin, our head coach, would come to my house in the morning, I would throw my change of clothes and my school books in his car. He would drive to Upper Darby High School, and I would chase his car. And he was just driving regular. But for me, a win was if I could be running and turn onto School Lane, which is a very long road, right? It's a long straight road. If I could still see his brake lights from when I hit running, I knew I was covering a lot of distance, a lot of time. So I'd run to school, then I would run at lunch break, and then I would run before practice. Then we'd have practice. I'd go home, have dinner. And then at night, I was running 10 to 15 mile runs every single night. So I was putting a lot of miles on. I really took the heart. And I was almost superstitious that if I didn't do it, somebody else was outworking me. And if that was the one arrow I was going to have in my quiver was that I was just going to be able to outwork guys. I just was so fanatical about being in better shape than everybody. And it turned out that with the work I, I, I was, and that is how I won a lot of matches was I was just a tough dude to hold on to. And, and I also really uh, gravitated towards pinning. You know, I think I, my senior year, I think it was other people this time. Yeah. I think I got, I think I was like 28 <laughs> and four my senior year. I think I pinned like 20 of them. I was splayed on guys and catching them with all these moves. <laughs> just, I just enjoyed pinning guys. I'm like, I can just get out of here early. I don't have to actually work this hard. And, and it was, it was fun, man. Some of the obviously best memories of my life were at Upper Darby wrestling with the, the kids and the coaching staff. So you had set your goals uh, previously to make, make varsity, right? So you were JV undefeated JV. Let me make varsity. That yeah. was your goal. And you said you felt like you set that a little too low. So yeah. what happened senior year? What was the, you ended up yeah yeah so senior year i uh i won the section i took second at districts uh behind a four-time district champ tom ingram um and then i took i lost in the semis in a controversial call and i had to wrestle back and i had to wrestle the returning fifth place finisher from the state tournament the year before in the constellation finals and i ended up beating him in overtime and i think you recall our, our slogan for upper Darby that year was we don't lose in overtime I remember uh, one of my teachers made a joke like, well, if you're any good, you wouldn't be in overtime, but whatever. That was, that was our, that was our way to say, we look, we know we work harder. So we make it overtime. We're going to win. And it, it worked. I mean, we made it overtime. I won the match to make it to the state tournament. And then when I got to the state tournament in the first round, I had to wrestle the eventual second place finisher. And he edged me out by like three points, pretty low scoring match. And then I won the next match. And then I had to wrestle the eventual third place finisher. And uh, he beat me by a point. And as another moment in my life where I realized I just didn't set my goals high enough because I had, my goal was to make it to the state tournament. And I did, I should have set the goal to win the state tournament <laughs> because you start realizing how close you are at the state level. And with a little bit of extra effort and extra focus on that type of goal, you know, I think that I could have, I could have placed higher. So, you know, as I work with young people now, I'm always trying to make sure that we're setting our goals high enough and that, you know, we sort of sprint through the goal we actually wanted on our way to something that's greater than maybe we thought we could accomplish. So did you realize that at the time, or is this something that you look back on now and think, wow, I should have set my goals higher? Or did you realize this within the, maybe within the moment or within the the month? That yeah, I, I did. I just, I remembered it at the time, just being like, man, like if I knew what I knew now, you know, because if you, that's why when you see, some some young guys make the tournament their sophomore their junior year they typically you know plays pretty well the senior year because now you're, you're, there's a familiarity with it and you know what to expect and I think that 
you know, I thought when I got to the state tournament, everyone was going to be a, a superstar and that much better than me. And it wasn't the case. And, and uh, you know, so I remember at the time, yeah, recognizing, man, I wish I had another year. <laughs> I think I couldn't take a shot at this thing. <laughs> so after that, uh, now you're realizing, oh, man, I should have set some higher goals. So w- what happens next after you get out of high school? So it's funny because as I, you know, I graduated an honor roll student. Right. So that was something that wrestling did for my life was it really gave me it gave me purpose. It gave me a reason to study. It gave me a reason to get good grades. I, you know, certainly upgraded the integrity of the friends that I had on the wrestling team. So the guys I was running the street with, which I obviously still have a lot of love for those guys. But, you know, people that are sharing common goals and pushing each other. You know, my my you remember my good buddy, Harry Velasquez, you know, he was just all all hard work as well. So we just buddied up and worked our butts off. But by the time I got to uh, graduation, I hadn't even really thought about college at that point. It wasn't something I even had considered. And then it was scramble time, like, oh, no, I better go to a college. So I, I fired out a bunch of applications and I got ex- I just went to the first place that accepted me, which was fairly Dickinson in Teaneck, New Jersey. But they didn't even have a wrestling team. <laughs> at the time, I, I thought I was going to be a gym teacher and a wrestling coach, is what I wanted to be. And uh, so I go to Fairleigh Dickinson, and then I transferred to Kutztown University to wrestle. At the same time, my good buddy Harry was graduating with a bunch of other kids that were his year. Remember, he also had a very good class of wrestlers. Right. Yeah. So like eight of us decided to all transfer, transfer or go to Kutztown. We all applied. We all got accepted, and we all went, which was another horrible decision. Because then I just end up partying with my buddies <laughs> and, not, and realizing that, frankly, I wasn't much, I, you know, my love for wrestling and the sport did not translate to a love for academics. You know, I, I grew up pretty poor, so I wanted to get working. I'd always worked. And throughout that, my whole high school career, I, I worked at a car wash, detailing cars and drying cars and pumping gas. And, and I remember my freshman year or my sophomore year in college, when I finally learned that the salary for a teacher at that point was like $32,000, I want to say it was back in 1998. And I had made like $28,000 as a senior in high school, drying cars at a car wash. I thought, what am I doing learning about the Civil War again? Like, I need to make money. <laughs> so I, uh, I actually had invented a product. I invented the uh, foot pump for a keg of beer, which you would think I would have made it and sold millions of them. It didn't work. <laughs> and, I, and I left school to pursue it. And, and that was it. That was sort of my last uh, collegiate experience, although I've had to learn a bunch of stuff. So hold, hold on. Explain <laughs> to me what a foot pump for a keg of beer. Like, what is that? Oh, okay. So if you're at a, if you're at a party, and I, in my demonstrations, I would give, you know, whoever I was presenting to, two cups, which is, you know, it's, it's you and your babe, you know, you and you're, and you go up to a keg, and it's just hard to fill, right? Because you got to pump it, and you got to hold the nozzle, and then you got to hold two cups. And I just remember being at a party, like spilling beer all over the place, thinking, "Why can't I just pump this thing with my foot? Like, why do I have to pump it with my hand?" So we took, a, you know, I sort of it's called kit bashing in product development, where you take some other products and make yourself a little, you know, rough prototype. So I, I did, and I made myself this awesome little prototype, and it was, you know, I had this design where it was half a football laces down the middle and i thought you would put like a beer logo on one side a team logo on the other and it was a really super cool product um but then you know i started doing some market knowledge and recognizing that uh one there wasn't a big market for it not a lot of people are buying taps right and at the same time i also had i had some really great backing because if at that point i mean i'm really gonna date myself there was really the internet was just starting 
It wasn't right. something that we used. So it was very difficult to do research. So Ed Rendell was the mayor. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, if he's the mayor. And then it was also Pat Croce at the time had, was running the Sixers. Right. And I just remember, I think I found that they had a common attorney. And I went, well, he must be the best attorney in the city of Philadelphia. So I just reached out to him and said, hey, let me let me come present my product. And he said, okay. And his name was. How old are you at the time? I'm, I'm, I'm 19. Maybe my bad. Okay, so you're so, you're going up against you're you're going to try to meet this attorney. What's his name? Lloyd Remick. Okay. Lloyd Remick. So Lloyd says, "Yeah, yeah, come on in." So I I go down. I, I don't know where I pulled a suit from. It must have been like my prom suit. And I get a suit on, and I have a, a keg of root beer, and I'm wheeling it down the streets of Center City, Philadelphia. I'm like on the elevator with all like the professionals, and I'm standing there like a jerk in my oversized suit, my keg of root beer. <laughs> I go in and do a, do my demonstration, and uh, and Lloyd just goes like, "Do you do you know who I am? Like, <laughs> let me explain to you like what I do." And but he was so gracious and unbelievable, generous with his time and his resources, and he he uh, connected me then with a um, I guess not sure what her title would have been, but another person on his team named Jackie Borak, who was also very very awesome to me and gracious with her time. And they said, we're going to do this stuff kind of pro bono. They set me up with a patent attorney that also said they would just do some work with me. They just kind of believed in what I was doing. They thought it was cool. Um, this is out of nowhere. You're 19 years old, right? Yeah. You 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 went away to school for, what, half a year? Uh, it was actually ended up being a, a, year, a year and a half. A year and a half, year and a half. And you're learning all of this on your own, right? Maybe a little guidance from Uncle John? Not at this point. Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, at this point, I was just winging it, right? I was just wildly ambitious. Um, I no you know, internet to do any research. No. Okay, go no. ahead. And I was just winging it, man. And I was just going, you know what? I'm going to kick doors open. I had, a, I was bubbling with confidence from my wrestling career and sort of the transition I had made in my life. I mean, that was a meaningful turnaround for for me that gave me a lot of confidence that I could accomplish things because I just accomplished a lot considering where I'd come from. And uh, yeah, man, I just, I just went in there and, you know, it's always why I say with young people, I'm like, go young. You know, when you, when you're young, older people want to see you win, you know, and they'll, they'll be gracious with their time. Like now I'm I'm approaching 44 years old. If I show up in a room, they expect me to know what I'm doing. When you're, when you're a young person or a kid, you, you get a pass, right? And if you've got a good idea and you show prepared, people will take you seriously and try to help because everyone can see themselves in you. So you know, yeah, I, Louis Remick was great, helped me out a lot. And then, you know, at the, at the time, my, my uncle, I went to him and I sort of gave him the demonstration because he was in the product business and they were going to, I needed to raise $500,000. And that's probably why I should have stayed in college to understand how that all works. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that was, a, that was a scary This was before shark, the sharks, right? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, so at that point, I think I was kind of shell shocked by that. I, I think if I frankly just went, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I'm not sure if I'm, if I am capable of handling the responsibility of taking on that type of money and trying to see this through. So I ended up just kind of letting it die on the vine and just, uh, you know, I still have my drawings and my prototype. I still have all that stuff, but I just never really pursued it. And part of the challenge was too, you couldn't patent it. There was actually something out there that was, uh, it was similar on a utility level. So you couldn't actually earn a patent. So you couldn't okay. protect it. So whatever, man, I, it was, that was one of my products that I took a shot at and there's been a few of them. <laughs> wow. Well, that, I mean, obviously you, you, you shot for the stars there with uh, trying to connect to those 
with those people. And I, I'm sure that came from those times when you were wrestling in high school, you're like, Oh man, I should have, I should have set a little higher goal. Yeah. So, yeah. Know. Well, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, you know, and, and that gave me a lot of confidence, you know, give me confidence that, wow, if I got myself prepared and I, and I showed up and I presented and they took me serious enough to really start dedicating time, money and resources on my behalf. And it, it gave me confidence that, wait a minute, if I just work hard and show up prepared, People will take you serious. And I think that, you know, it was a, it was a great moment. Yes, it was pre-pandemic. So probably about two years ago now, I had met uh, uh, just a, a guy in business who I, who I really got to like. And he invited me to an event. And he said, do you want to come to a book signing event for one of my clients? And I said, sure. Yeah, who's your client? He says, Lloyd Remick. <laughs> and I hadn't <laughs> seen Lloyd now in, geez, in 20 years. And I said, I'll be there. And I showed up at Lloyd Remick's book signing in Center City, Philadelphia, and reintroduced myself and got him to sign my book and had a, a hug and a couple laughs with him. And, he, and, you know, I don't know if he remembered me. He told me he remembered me and showing up with a keg of root beer. But it was good to be able to go back and support his efforts, you know, later on in life. So, all right, let's let's jump forward a little bit. All right. So you, you you've been very successful in your endeavors. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do now and what got to, got you to where you are now? Sure. Sure. So, you know, at that time, you know, when I was young, Kev, you remember, I, I was always entrepreneurial minded. And I, and I think that that moment really just gave me a lot of uh, just blind ambition. So, you know, when I was young, I remember I bought a mechanical bull and I started, I was, I would always bartend at nights, which would keep my days open to try entrepreneurial things. And I always knew from the beginning, I just wanted to own my own business. I, I had uh, very ambitious goals financially. And I thought that that was done through owning my own business. And at, at a young age, when I was bartending, I just recognized that a lot of these places struggled with promotion. So I started a little promotional company. I bought a mechanical bull. And now, now everyone's seen one, right? Now everyone's been to Xfinity Live and right. they're way more, uh, um, you know, on the radar than they were at the point. No one had ever seen one. So I bought one. It was a hilarious, a hilarious company. For six nights a week, I was just booked at bars, throwing people off a mechanical bull for a living. And they <laughs> were paying for it. They were paying it, to get thrown. Yeah, it was a great, I'll be honest, it was a hustle. I mean, the first place I went was Casey's in Drexel Hill. Uh, I bought this bull from Idaho and they drove it from Idaho to me. And as part of the purchase, I got a four hour training session. I said, okay, block that four hours at Casey's in Drexel Hill at eight o'clock on whatever date it was. And these guys drive from Idaho and got there on time. I mean, think about all the risk of that, right? And they run this event and and the owner of Casey's, I, what I did was I benchmarked my fees to bands. I went, well, these bands will bring 300 people when you pay them 4,000 bucks. So give me 4,000 bucks. And every bar owner would say, I'm not paying you $4,000 for a bowl. And I would say, okay, well, just let me keep the door then. Let me keep the door and let me charge for rides. You keep the bar. I'll keep that. And they were like, you'll do the promotion. I said, sure. So I'd be out flying cars and knocking on doors. So the first night at Casey's, we did $4,000 at the door and we did $2,000 in rides. We did six grand. The whole business cost 30. We got 20% of it back. <laughs> first night. <laughs> the first Plus night. the training. <laughs> Plus the training. Yeah. And it was funny. The guys that came from Idaho were true cowboys. I was such an idiot. I didn't realize that I didn't buy a mechanical bull that was like a novel, like a like for like a novelty, like entertainment. I bought one that was used to train professional bull riders. 
So they literally slaughtered a bull, recreated it with muscle tone. It was the biggest thing you'd ever see. And it was a spectacle. And and we did extremely well with that. I mean, we were, I think, averaging $2,000 a night, six nights a week for quite some time. <laughs> so it was a, Wow. So, but, but so when them, then as I was sort of running, running and gunning and doing all that stuff, um, you know, I was at my uncle's business. He ran a, he ran a warehouse and, you know, he just kind of pulled me to the side and said, Zach, look, you're doing all this stuff and you're out till six nights a week. I had, I had just started dating my now wife and he sort of said, do you think she's going to stay with a guy that's out partying six nights a week with a bull? You know, you've learned how to make money, but why don't you learn some fundamentals to really be able to grow and scale a business instead of just, you know, making some cash? So um, I sold my half of the bull business um, and the uh, and I went to work with my uncle full time for like, I want to say it was like 15 bucks an hour. So I went from making all this cash to now 15 bucks an hour. And it was running a production line. And so basically it was a warehouse and we would do, we would, we would put products together. So all the components would be shipped here from China. Nowadays, it doesn't economically make sense. It's typically everything's assembled in China, but at the time it did. So the, the parts would get delivered and I would have to organize human assembly lines, sometimes four or five running at one time. And then we would have, you know, 50 to 60 temp workers show up in the morning and I'd have to get everybody in the right positions and you know, with an assembly line, it's a, it's a great metaphor for any business or any life because, you know, you've got these eight people that you put in a in a line and you've time tested every position. And what's interesting is you say, you know, the the one thing you can't do is help the person next to you because we got to be able to see this thing run in, in an authentic manner to be able to tell if if I've got it set up right. Otherwise, I might need to add somebody, whatever. So you would watch the line go and then you would see it jam and you would see the people in the front of the line sort of working or, or waiting and then the people on the end waiting and somebody's stuck in the middle. And sometimes it was something so subtle as, oh my goodness, I put somebody that has, you know, bigger fingers in a, in a job that takes the very small meticulous, you know, dexterity in their fingertips, oh, switch them out. You know, there's little things like that. But, you know, nowadays when I run a company, it's the same thing where you're like, listen, we all help each other, obviously, but you want to be able to organically see where you have log jams, where you have inefficiencies, so you can sort of hit the stop button for a second, get in, get it greased and get it running again. But I credit that warehouse, you know, no air conditioning, no heat. You know, I grinded that job for, I think, three years with my uncle before he ended up, uh, um, you know, selling it and eventually dissolving that business um, when his partner created another product that I went to work for. But that was a, just a phenomenal experience. I think that is where I really learned how to run a business. I had a hundred employees reporting to me and, that's where I learned checks and balances, how to read financial statements, understanding efficiencies and time and all that good stuff. It's almost as if that, when you were when you were running that assembly line, you know, that's kind of a microcosm of a business and, and it's a big machine. And you've got to kind of look at all these parts in your business and, how, hey, is this working? Nope. Let's change that out. And is that yeah. true or? A hundred percent. You know, I think that when you look at any company, any business, you know, if you, it's always about production capability, right? So if the, how much revenue or sales can you generate on the front end, and then your operations has to be able to support that. So everything has to be in sequence because if you're generating more business than you can produce, that can sometimes be more harmful than not generating enough business. So you sort of got to build the operations while you build the sales cycle on any business. And that is absolutely something that I learned running production lines where I feel like that's where I got my college degree, frankly. You learned on the job. 
learned on the job. And there's, yep. there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of value in that. A lot of value and yep. experience. Yeah. Yeah. So then what did you, so then while I was there, um, you know, my uncle, uh, partner was a guy named Ed Sprague, who's just, uh, was one of the great mentors of my life. Uh, Ed's a very fantastic and just an unbelievable story. I mean, he walked onto the jets and got signed, uh, just, a just an amazing man. He's written a couple different books now, um, which were, which have all been published and have done very well. He's just a very interesting entrepreneurial guy. And he was my mentor. He was the one that was running my uncle's company and, and really drove me to start listening to a lot of audiobooks. You know, I was listening to a ton of audiobooks, you know, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill is my favorite, but you know, all the Stephen Covey stuff, uh, Earl Nightingale, you name it. I just started gobbling those things up. And at the time he invented a golf product called Ballsy, which was this, uh, this little vinyl thing that you can put in your pocket and it, it feels like you're carrying three bucks, but the inside's terry cloth and you wet it, you wring it out, you keep it in your pocket. So when you chip your ball up onto the green, most people have a dirty ball. They wipe it on their pants or they, you know, this, you can just pull it out of your pocket. And I, I still have a couple thousand of them if you want them, but <laughs> we, we sold, I mean, we sold 3 million of them, I think, give or take. And uh, half of it was through retail. You can go into any golf galaxy, Dick sporting goods. They're still sold there. Still and sold. yeah. And then uh, the other half was through the ad specialty markets, which was putting logos on them. So that's where, you know, we, we dropped sort of the warehouse business. It kind of got priced out. Frankly, everything was cheaper to get done in China. So we saw the writing on the wall. We pursued this ballsy business for full time. And, and that was a, a nice four-year run. We won like best product of the year at the PGA merchandising show, which was like the biggest golf show in the world. And we had some, some great wins. However, we didn't make any money. <laughs> I didn't make any money. I know that. <laughs> so... So at the time, I had a good friend who was uh, in real estate. We were frankly shooting a, a commercial. And uh, my my one buddy's just oddly athletic. And he can do backflips and stuff. And we were the blue-collar guys of golf. So he was tackling guys on the golf course and blocking tee shots like their punts. It was just a funny day. And he pulled up in this nice car. And I remember thinking, like, what are you doing? And he said, wow, I'm in, I'm in commercial real estate. I said, well, what's that? I, I'm out this product business, I'm not making any money. So, uh, you know, he was very, very gracious. He's my buddy, Kenny Weller. He won't mind me saying his name. He's, he's one of my very, very good friends, a very, very accomplished real estate guy. Now, Kenny, at the time, Kenny he Weller. was just Kenny Weller. Yeah, man, another, he was a Yaden guy. Okay. So we all ran in the same circles as kids. And, uh, and to this day, he's a, he's a very close friend. And uh, so, so he, he sort of brought me into the office and showed me what they were doing. And I went to work for a company called Marcus and Millichap, which was uh, just, a, it was a great company to get started because they didn't pay you. <laughs> so they said, yeah, you can have a desk if you can make it, if you can make it, make it. If you can't, you can't. So I like, I've always liked that type of opportunity where no one's telling me what my time's worth, if I can dictate it. So I came into that business um, and just recognized that it was a lot of individuals who were out there doing real estate deals and kind of chasing paychecks is the way I like to put it. And not many people had spent the time to build the infrastructure to get the operations type so they could go vertical, really scale. So that's where I focused. And, uh, you know, I, I had a great part. Kenny helped me out for a year and we got some really great deals done. And then I, uh, I joined a partnership with another, another guy who's just another very accomplished real estate guy now. And we had a phenomenal partnership for the next, I guess, four and a half years uh, at Marcus and Millichap, just, just, just doing deals, you know, trading apartment buildings. Um, our average deal size, oh, commercial, I think, right? No, not, not a, a not commercial, um, multifamily is that's yeah. Multifamily is what it's technically called in the industry. Um, but basically to simplify it, we sell apartment buildings. So you have these investor groups or families that own these buildings and at times for whatever motivation they, they want to sell them. So they hire us 
to go make a market and drive a process. And at the end of the day, present a bid sheet that might have 20 offers on it. And then we get to choose who's the most qualified at the highest price and the best possible terms and get deals closed. So uh, it was a great, phenomenal experience, sort of that proving ground of Marcus and Millichap. And some of the top real estate brokers that are in this space today started at Marcus. We all were there together. And then we all kind of, I think, outgrew it over time. Uh, so then we got we got um, recruited to open an office for another fantastic company, uh, HFF. Um, what just a, a really a unbelievable company, top to bottom. You know, they were the type of uh, leadership there that were challenging me on like, well, what are you doing for your community? You know, what kind of man are you? They started asking me those types of questions, and I started realizing like, man, I'm I'm, I'm not doing much. <laughs> you know, so they actually got me back into doing a lot more mentorship and things that I, I wasn't doing at the time because they challenged us to do that. Um, so we built that over the next, I guess, 18 months, and we grabbed number one market share in the Philadelphia region selling apartments. Uh, at the time, our team had the uh, largest sale in the history of Philadelphia. We sold a $160 million uh, um, high-rise apartment building in our first year with the new company. The, the largest sale in the history of Philadelphia at the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if anything's beat it yet, to be honest with you. Um, but at the time, and you said 160 million, it was a $160 million transaction. Wow. Yeah. But that, I mean, look, to do deals that big, it takes a, takes a team. Um, I was one member of a team and frankly, kind of a junior member at that time. Cause that company really elevated our game and brought us uh, just to a, a higher pedigree, which was awesome. Um, but I built that over the next like two years and yeah, I, I loved it, but then, you know, I got the bug and I invented another product and, you know, Took a shot at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. All right. <laughs> so, so in, uh, I, I, you know, this is you, a, were, you were rolling along, rolling along very well with the real estate. Uh, yeah. Very successful, and then. Yeah, by all accounts, we had, we we had made it right. We had number one market share in the Philadelphia region. Uh, you know, we were doing you know well financially. You know, we we're doing great. I had I had my my daughter. At that point was, I guess, about three years old. We had bought a new house in Westchester. And, uh, you know, I just, I was, I was sitting on Walnut Street one day in Philadelphia. And when school lets out around three o'clock, you would just see these groups of kids walking down the street together. And inevitably, one of them would always have their phone out playing music. And I just thought, and you, you can't hear that. Like, why don't they just make a speaker that can attach to the back of a, of a phone so you can hear it? And, you know, I started doing some market research and just realized that there was nothing available. And not only that, but it was very difficult to get anything that sounded good in a small compartment because, a, you know, for a base response specifically, it's a, it's a very, it's a long wave. You need space. That's why they'll give you a portable speaker that's shaped like a can, like a Coke can, and tell you it's portable. But what are you going to do, carry a backpack with it? So um, I, I had an idea and a vision. And uh, at the same time, I, I met another good friend of mine who was in the space who connected me with a 3D animator. So I spent a couple bucks and got a really cool 3D animated video, sort of like an Apple commercial, where it would sort of present itself and show you conceptually what we were working on. And uh, I guess serendipitously, the you know young guy that was working in my office uh, had a friend in Chicago that was actually personally mentored by Mark Cuban. So I got an introduction to Mark Cuban, and I sent him my video. And his he responded back within like 30 minutes. And he said, uh, he goes, I love it. What do you need from me? And what do I get in return? <laughs> he went, what? So I, I was up all night, you know, 
I didn't know what to even ask him for. I had no, I, I had a video. I was still a real estate guy and, and all this stuff. And I just said, look, I, I you know, I have, I forget the deal we made. I, I, I can't remember what it was. I think it was 250,000 for 10% of the company. Okay. But he said, you know, send me your business plan. I, said, well, I, don't, I don't have one yet. So he said, well, let me know when you do. So I, I spent the next month still doing real estate. I, I managed my sleep down to four hours a night. Cause I would come home and, you know, Spend time with my family, spend time with my my daughter, put her to bed, and I would work from nine to one in the morning, just on my business plan for a, for a month straight. And I'd be up at work, and I was still up at work at six six thirty in the morning. So it was just a grind, you know. And uh, put a nice business plan together, and you know, through that process, I kind of realized I, I also didn't know if I was ready for an investor like that. So you know, I I had done well enough where I could sort of support the company in the beginning. I I just didn't feel comfortable taking anybody else's money until I had a working prototype. Right. There was a big responsibility once you take somebody else's investment. So, uh, so yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I put together a, you know, a team that I could put, I had a great partner, Michael out of Chicago, um, who was more on the tech side and the young cool side. And we hired some great audio engineers to go out to China and make this product. And we created bump out, um, which was our speaker product. And, uh, yeah, that's what I did for the next four years was, you know, didn't get a paycheck for four years. <laughs> you know, my wife who thought we were financially stable, we had a, during the process, the day I launched that product, I had twin daughters <laughs> and, and it was just an uphill battle. And, if, you know, I found out through that process that, you know, I liked marketing. I liked being creative and I just ended up raising venture capital full time, just running up to down to New York, to LA, just all over the place, just trying to raise money. And we ended up raising a million and a half dollars of venture capital. Eventually, Mark Cuban did did invest with us among you know ten other investors, and uh, we we launched Bump Out and, and gave it our best go. But and again, with this product business, it didn't work. You know, we we found that frankly we missed the market um, by about probably by a solid two years. I first had this idea in 2011. I didn't act till 14, and uh, so we missed the market. Uh, we were overpriced because you're, if you show up with a as a first product company, the factory is going to charge you a lot more than they would normally charge somebody else. So, you know, we were trying to sell it for a hundred bucks, and it was probably really a sixty dollar product. Uh, we, you know, instead of getting the first version out, we kind of went right after it and had this awesome packaging and all these cool features, and it just we over improved the product. I think, frankly, to be honest with you, and then we just we found that as we were raising money, we were just going through it so fast and. Every time we would spend a dollar in marketing, we would only get back like 75 cents. You know, we were like, oh no, this isn't sustainable. So I ended up having to fund a lot of it myself. And eventually, you know, once the, uh, you know, I had maxed out every credit card. <laughs> and we were, you know, this time my wife's home with these babies and, and I'm out here trying to get this business off the ground and going into financial, <laughs> going backwards financially. And I, I just said, you know what, all right, this isn't this isn't fair to do to my family. And really, we could see the writing on the wall that it just wasn't going to work um, and that we didn't have enough money or time to make it work. So um, we started, you know, I, I was going back into real estate. I started doing some consulting. I always had loved real estate. It's something I really enjoyed. So I went back and started doing some consulting for a firm. And as I sort of wound down the company, um, you know, I, I, I had formed a great relationship with my now partner in real estate at Bercadia, which is where I am currently. That's where I was also consulting. And uh, it was just, an, I, you know, I, I love that business too. I didn't leave real estate because I didn't like it. I love it. So it was kind of a natural thing. And I, now I had a great partner to, to help grow a team. And I was, I was back in the game, I guess, as of about four years ago. Now I've been back into real estate and we are, uh, 
we're kicking butt. It's great. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. First of all, go back to the bump out. Um, it takes a lot of guts to do what you did there. I mean, you, le you left a pretty solid career in real estate. Uh, you had been in product development before, so you knew the challenges. Um, and you, you, you stuck with it as long as you could. You, do, yeah. you, where do you think that comes from? You think that came from wrestling or? You know, yeah, I, I do. I think a lot of it does come from wrestling. I, again, the, I think that when I learned that you can outwork most situations, right? If you don't have the skill set, if you don't have the technique, when I got into real estate, I didn't know anything. I didn't have a college. I was the only guy in the room without a college degree, but I just said, all right, I'm going to be the first guy in the office. And I was, I was sitting there every day at six and the next guy wouldn't show up till seven. And then I'm the last guy to leave. So I was just putting in the hours and that's always something you can do. And if you know that you can control effort and focused effort, you can typically do pretty well in most situations. So, you know, I, I think that at the time, I, I, I think I was uh, a little bit dumb that I didn't consider all the risk factors either. Um, I didn't have the experience to really consider it. Right. So sometimes, you know, what, you don't know what you don't know. And you say, I don't need to know it all. I think that what I made is pretty good. I'm going to take a shot. And I took a shot and it didn't work. Uh, but one of the greatest things that came out of that, Kevin, was, you know, when I was in real estate, the one thing I had never addressed was my fear of public speaking. And I had the most uncontrollable fear of public speaking. If I, I Even in college, I would never do the presentations. I would just turn in the written portion, which particularly, typically it's just 70. And then I would just skip the presentation portion because I was so afraid. And my cheeks would start shaking. I would turn red and start sweating, like just uncontrollable fear. And I thought, man, I, I usually attack things I'm afraid of. And I, I didn't in this case. So when I, when I left real estate, I had never done the real estate panels. I had never done much sort of public speaking. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack that. So I went back to Upper Darby High School and uh, said, hey, let me just start talking to some kids. Like that was a nice segue to get in front of a group, which was a little, which wasn't much pressure. And they put me with the uh, the dreaded undecided kids. And it was the kids that didn't know if they were going to college or what they were going to do. And, you know, I come in with all this experience trying different things. And, and I also looked at them as a potential sort of focus group for my product. Where I got to share stuff. And um, I remember asking, like, you know, what, what are you what are you supposed to do? What are you what are, what are you guys thinking about this? And one young man raises his hand and says, well, he says, uh, I guess you either go to college or join the workforce. I remember being like so shocked to hear the word workforce. And I just said, okay, here's for the, here's the rule. The next person that says workforce, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> and these kids are like, look at me, like, what is this guy talking about? And I just said, look, you're 17, 18 years old. This is the time of your life where you get to dream. This is the time of your life where you get to really find something that you love to do. And I think that that's where I recognize that just expectations a lot of times are mismanaged at the school level. And not enough focus is, are, is placed on where these individual talents lie and how to nurture those into a career that you love. And a lot of people, I think, uh, feel that they have to stay in a job from the point of a job or whatever. And I've learned over time that you, you don't have to do that. You can find stuff you love to do, find your, your, your God-given talents and nurture them and have a really enjoyable career. Because if you're enjoying what you're doing, it doesn't feel a lot like work. And so, you know, I expanded that, um, that program. Uh, at the time, I had recruited another Upper Darby wrestler, Matt Chaka, to come work with me on my bump out business. And his background was in education. And 
you know, we would, we started just doing these events. It was, it was October 8th, 2016 when we did our first event and we called it uh, bump out United. And eventually that became bump out you. And basically the whole philosophy was let's bring in groups of people in our network that are accomplished, some academic, some not, but that really have found what they love to do and have been able to be successful doing that. And the first event was tremendous. We had about, I want to say we had about 80 kids show up to on a rainy Saturday for this first event. And, you know, I always like to add a little funk to everything, a little flavor. So, you know, we had live DJs were spinning music and that's how the, the, the groups were broken out. And it was just a cool, fun event. And actually our attendance grew over the course of the event because the kids started texting their friends going, hey, this is pretty cool. Come. Yeah, yeah. Four kids started showing up and it, it was cool. And then after the events, you know, the, you know, I think some of these kids had, um, you know, uh, exchange contact information with me or some of the other people that were were helping these students. And we just realized that, you know, the engagement was so tremendous afterwards, but now what? We ran a one-day event. We inspired kids. They said, I'm ready to make the change. I'm ready to figure this out. And then we weren't there to help them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, you know, I worked with Matt to help recruit some other folks from the nonprofit space um, to build out a full nonprofit that we eventually switched the name to The Glue. Because uh, our one of our presenters is our Harold Burnett. He's a he's a he's a pastor, and he takes he takes you to church. And we we start doing these events for a thousand kids at a time at Upper Darby at Radnor Middle School, and we get a thousand students riled up. And he's the one that sort of talked about the glue. And you know the glue, you know when it's dry, it's visible, but it's when it's invisible, but it's what holds everything together. And you know for us the that was kind of a metaphor for things like uh, you know sacrifice and um, perseverance persistence, integrity, right? All those things that nobody sees that hold you together, you know? So, so that was our sort of uh, thoughts behind naming it the glue. And, you know, we built that into a full curriculum that we launched in uh, Widener Partnership Charter School in Chester. And that was an in-school curriculum. We were there every week for an eight-week program, just teaching these kids the soft skill development of how to win at anything that you do. And a lot of those principles are come directly from wrestling. It's the same stuff. If you can win at wrestling, you can win at anything else in your life. And uh, we've taken those principles and been able to apply them to teaching a lot of different kids, you know, how to go for it and how to really take a shot. That's awesome. Are you, you still involved with this? Yeah. So while COVID, you know, we were, the goal was to get to in-school curriculum. Um, we ran our first cohort which was uh, an after-school program at Upper Darby High School. And so we did a thousand-person event. We had 250 kids follow up and say they wanted to participate. And we graduated 65 students, which 70% of them were female, which was very interesting. It was, just, it was unexpected for us that that would be the turnout because it was voluntary. It excluded students that took buses home because we were going to be after school, so they would have had to have walked. And in order to get the, the sort of diploma or the certification, you had to attend every single after-school session once a week for eight weeks. And we had 65 kids that did it. <laughs> and it was just amazing to watch them sort of piece the dots together. That, Wait a minute. You mean like, so for example, I always talk about video games. It's a great way to, in a room full of students, say, who likes video games? Everyone's hand goes up. Say, okay, who likes video games? And then also has some graphic art abilities and is interested in graphic arts and you know, uh, 3D animated videos and stuff like that. And then you get some hands go up. And we would say, like, did you realize you can just go to a school like Harrisburg University where where they'll just teach you about 
video gaming and how to make graphics for video games. And these students were like, no, I didn't know I could do that. It's like, yeah, you can. So, you know, for us, it was really about trying to open the doors and open their minds to realize, like, forget about having to get a job. Tell me what you love. And then let's find out what is out there from a career path that is in line with what you naturally already enjoy. And, you know, as I run my company now, it's, it's, it's a lot of the management style, which is if you start working, write down what you love and write down what you hate. And eventually we're going to find somebody that wants to do the things that loves doing the things that you hate. And they might hate the things that you love, but let's, let's make sure everyone's in the right seat. And then it's, there's always a clear path of growth in a company. If you know that you can get rid of a bunch of stuff to someone that's going to enjoy it and take on new responsibilities to fill the things that you're not doing anymore. So what you're doing with these kids and with your, you know, some of your employees is you're, you're, you're taking, you're helping them take the molds that they think they're supposed to be in and throwing those away and they're creating their own molds. Is that exactly analogy? Good analogy. Yeah. I mean, our, our, our tagline is individuality together, you know, and I, and I found Kevin that we're all, everyone's so wildly different right? Just from each other. We have things that are in common, but we have things that are greatly different. And that's true with any two people. So to, we have this, this academic school learning program that has to be for the masses. However, you know, those that really find their purpose that fits them individually, that is fulfilling. Um, you know, for example, teachers are a great example of a, a class of people that I love and admire that are purpose driven. It's not, you don't become a teacher because you want to get rich. You do it because you want to help a lot of kids. And, uh, you know, that there's so much self fulfillment and joy that comes from that. And, you know, if you're financially motivated, we can find things that are fun there too, that make a lot of money. It's just, you know, what does it, what's, what satisfies each individual. So at the end of the night, they go home, they feel like they've done a good job at whatever it was that they should be doing. I want to move on to a couple other things here before we, uh, we run out of time. So you and I are on the Wrestlers in Business uh, Network um, executive board. Well, board, I guess. Been doing some uh, event planning together. Yep. We did Summit 1, Summit 2, a couple other things. And um, at these events, uh, we worked with a guy named Mike Vespa, which yep. – I think my boy. Has, yeah, he's your boy. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> he's a visionary, um, yeah. in, incredible human being, uh, hard worker and uh, very creative. Um, are you guys still working together? You got anything going on or? Yeah. Yeah. Kevin, I mean, that was, you know, the whole rest of the business network is just, it's awesome, right? It's just a great group of, of, of guys. And, and, and now luckily we get some girls involved from the wrestling community. They're just there to support each other. You know, and and I found that, you know, it's it's so wrestlers are just a fraternity. Right. So whether you're in another state, another city, if you meet another wrestler, you're, you're typically going to get a good response. You've already you've already cut through a lot of the BS of, of who you're talking to. You know, that there's some <laughs> there's some commonality there. Um, so when I joined the Wrestling Business Network, I did it mostly because I wanted to find ways that I can maybe um, continue sort of the theme of what I like to do, frankly, which is work with some young people, maybe help them see things in a different way that allow them to, you know, try to kill it in life. And one of the most beneficial things I got out of it was meeting Michael Vespa. So he was running all the production. And, you know, in that space, it, it was kind of similar to bump out, right? Where it's like, you need these young people to have the creative freedoms and to understand the technical side of stuff. But then 
you also, you know, you, you partner that that person with somebody that's maybe has some experience in running companies and businesses, which which I did, just to make sure things run smoothly. And it was, I, frankly, a pretty seamless uh, production because Vespa was just that good. And him and I just shared a lot of the same thoughts on on life and ambition. And, you know, our sport of wrestling is unbelievable. It's phenomenal. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is much more of um, an introduction of culture into our sport. Um, I think for a while it was just kind of go, 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 some coach yelling in your face. And nowadays you're really seeing these unbelievable personalities in wrestling. You know, obviously Penn State, I think, is the most um, obvious one as far as just a free-flowing, funky, awesome style where creativity, you know, wrestling's become a lot more of an, an art form. And and so in working with Michael Vespa, we uh, we just thought, what could we do? You know, I, I, I he's he's got Vespa Productions, um, which is his business where he does live streaming and any type of thing that involves video and drone footage and all that good stuff. Well, what can we do together? And, you know, I, one thing I recall was always going to, you know, some clinics when we were young. And, you know, I think that when we looked at the clinic space, we were like, you know what, here's a way for us to work together to impact the lives of young people in a positive way to, you know, to, to work together with Mike on something that that was really his vision that I could help support him and provide some guidance and resources to help it be successful. So we've got our first uh, our first clinic. Uh, which will be one of a of a of a series. Um, our business is called um, LVLS, which is just levels, you know. And we, and we like that name because um, you know there, there's levels to everything. Um, there's levels to the podium where you're going to be standing. There's levels to the work you're going to put in. And we thought that, that was pretty all encompassing. So our, our 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 clinic and our business is called Levels LVLS. And our first clinic is on uh, July 9th and 10th at Maple Zone in um in aston right on route 322 so it's a huge field house it's basically an indoor soccer field so we're gonna have some unbelievable clinicians coming in i mean our our headlining clinician is henry cejudo but then we've got yeah olympic gold medalist uh you know the triple c you know gold medal (laughs) olympic champ yeah two weight division uh ufc champ and just you know his vibe and just energy is exactly what we want, right? It's not, you know, he's not, a, he's the last, he's first away from dry, right? He's just a big personality who's just so passionate about our sport and helping people. So it aligned really well to get him to headline it. And then we've just got some unbelievable, you know, collegiate wrestlers that'll be there to help. Um, you know, we also want to talk about winning young. If you, if you recall that uh, I talked about not knowing, not setting my goals high enough. So we wanted also wanted to get somebody that, that, was winning at a young age to be able to share not only their wrestling moves and you know we'll, we'll handle all those things, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the right mental preparation and mindset at our events as well. So we were able to get um, AJ Ferrari to fly in for us to be a, uh, to be a counselor. NCAA champ. NCAA champ is a freshman at 197 too, which is tough, right? you see some lighter guys do it, but to get a, a, you know, somebody that young to win it at a heavyweight class is a special type of talent and work. And I think his work ethic is great. Um, you know, he'll be joined by his father, who's offered to even speak to some parents about some of you know the efforts that he had to put forward to support his son in his dreams and what that was like. And so we'll have a little bit for the parents. And, and then we've just got some unbelievable, you know, we want to get some of the PRTC guys in the mix um, to be sort of counselors for that day as well and sort of help the kids and just rally around an awesome wrestling community that we have here in southeastern Pennsylvania and Jersey. 
It's only right across the bridge from Jersey where you're sitting. Um, so I think that we can really do an awesome big event where we're going to add some flavor to it, man. You know, you're going to walk in there to, to music and, and lights and it's going to be funky. It's going to be fun and uh, it's going to be on, unbelievable energy. And I think that our goal is to really have an impactful program for these kids where then after that program, they've got some content and things that they can go back and, and pull from, not only from technique and wrestling, but technique in life. So we know, you know, Henry's going to do a nice, you know, 45 minute, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a speech, but talking to these these students about what his life was like, what his losses were like, you know, where his failures came in and how he treated those failures and how he got through them and, and all those different things. So well, I think he, he took a, an alternate path. He he didn't go to college right out of high school and he chose to follow his dreams. Yeah. He, he broke the mold, so to speak. Yeah. 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 And it's a, uh, you know, I think he's, he's going to be an unbelievable just he's just an unbelievable human and to, to see the energy he brings to everything and his passion for helping our sport his passion for helping young people you know I, I these clinics i've seen clinics before but a lot of times i think they're run by 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 just you know wrestlers and you know for us we were like you know we can turn this into a super cool event um and then just bring in some unbelievable talent to work on the technique and the mindset but really just run a, a first class fun well-branded event and that's our that's our goal well, it seems like a very unique setup for what you're talking about. Um, you know, a couple of the things. One, uh, AJ Ferrari's father is going to talk to the parents, you know, which is, you know, typically when you have a, a clinic or a camp, you know, parents drop their kids off a couple hours, pick them up. Mm -hmm. They're going to be able to hang around and they're going to get something out of it as well, which is yeah. unique. And, and it's, uh, obviously that's, beneficial that's a big part of it you know and when you've got you know once you get bitten by the wrestling bug and you're committed to it you know it's not necessarily a wildly expensive sport right if you don't have a ton of equipment and things like that but what, it's a humongous sacrifice of time it's a major commitment from everybody and to have parents understand what that commitment is going to look like for their son to be or daughter to be a champion i love saying daughter now i have three i have three girls now i see girls wrestling coming in i'm like yes man finally. girl dad yeah <laughs> yeah i'm all about girl power man <laughs> so so you know to i think that sharing with the parents some of those techniques and, and not only him well we'll have some other groups that'll you know we that'll have other topics to discuss you know nutrition how to how to cut weight the right way you know what that looks like you know and just just make sure that we can do an all-encompassing event for anybody that wants to participate and it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. But, you know, we want it to be something that can be a springboard for some of these young wrestlers to really, you know, say that's what that was the catalyst that made me focus a little harder, that made me, you know, pay attention to the little details that made me fill in the gaps and recognize maybe some things that I could be sacrificing to spend a little bit more time on my training to, uh, you know, ultimately achieve their goals. Right. I had first met Mike Vespa when we did summit one and I didn't really know him. And we, we spent a lot of time planning and, and, uh, implementing what, you know, his vision was. And if this event is anything like the summits, it's going to blow people's minds. Yeah. Cause I he is, so. I mean, he is really good at what he does. He is man. And I think that's where him and I really, build a relationship and like vibed out is it you know it's all about fun you know and it's all about 
you know, making this stuff fun and doing stuff that you love. And, you know, this allows me to, to, to work with a young man like Vesper, who's got this great energy. He's one of me, I think he's the most likable dude I've ever met. And he just has a really good vision for how to, frankly, just do some things to make the sport a little cooler, you know? And, 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 you know, we, we do think that there's a much more of an opportunity to integrate, I see things like culture and music and art into what we do, because it's already scratching the surface a little bit. So I think for an educational platform, um, like, like the one that we're launching to be able to work with a young guy like Mike, that has got such an awesome vision. And just at times I can just play like guardrail, you know, he's, he's got the engine, he's got the motor. I just got to play guardrail and make sure we don't make any mistakes. And, and, and he's going to, you know, knock the cover off the ball. He's the one that's locked in all the talent and has just done a tremendous job of, of, of organizing what will be a, a, a one of a kind event. I can't imagine that there's been another clinic like the one that we're actually calling them uh, mini camps. So they're a little bit more detailed than a clinic. It'll be a two day event. The name of your business is, is levels, right? Yep. Yep. What is, what do you call in the event itself? Um, it, yeah, it's just going to be, it's going to be the, the levels mini camp one. Really, you know, I mean, we, we plan to do a couple of them this summer. Yep. Uh, this will be the first one. Um, you know, I, I think there's some opportunities. I like, I like that name in general as a, as a brand. And, you know, that was something that, that Vespa really leaned into was how do we make something that's, that's sustainable. So what's great is, you know, I'm able just to support a guy. Like he's got a vision of what this thing should be. And we hop on calls a couple times a week and then he kills it every day. So <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, I, I've been around the sport. It's I'm coming up on 50 years this before, and I've run camps and clinics and, and uh, you know, overnight camps. I mean, I, I've never seen or heard anything like you're telling me is going to happen here. So this is exciting. True. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be there, right? Obviously we're going oh, to be tapping absolutely. you for some help, buddy. You're not getting out of here scot-free. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, rally all our friends in the wrestling community to help us make an awesome event. And, and, you know, we haven't really announced everything yet because everything's just getting put together right now, as far as like the website and the social handles. So, you know, whether you're on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, whatever you're on, you know, we're LVLS or LVLS uh, USA, I believe is on one of the, one of the social pages we weren't able to get LVLS. So it's LVLS USA, but yeah, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a cool, fun event, man. I think it could be a very impactful uh, thing for all the, all the students in our region. So well, once you guys get launched, I'll start putting it out there for you, but I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to discuss it. I mean, this is, this is awesome. I can't. Yeah, wait. it's going to be fun, Kevin. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that, that you and Michael Medro, you know, invited me to be a part of the WIBN. Um, I'd gone to a meeting you know, geez, I guess about six, seven years ago, maybe, uh, when they had one down at University of Pennsylvania, and I kind of went and never got really active. And I think the <clears throat> the chapter at that point, I'm not sure what happened to it, but I think the leadership in the WIBN Philadelphia has done a tremendous job with you and Mike Medro included. And you know, I love what you guys are doing for the sport, man. This Philly wrestling podcast that you're doing and and all the activities that you're spending time on to help nurture these 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 student athletes is 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 tremendous. And I think as as a community we can just rally around each other. We can have really meaningful impacts on some young people's lives. And frankly, it's on our lives as well. Right. I mean, I get so much enjoyment and satisfaction out of watching and helping young people kill it that, yeah, you know, it's kind of selfish for me too. I, you know, man, you, you're my coach. You were the guy making me do it. So 
you know, well, this I, is, I, you know, <laughs> thinking about your, your clinic that you and Vesper are putting together here, you know, my first thought is not, you know, he's not doing this for the money. He, this, this guy, Zach Pierce and, and Mike, they're doing this to give back to the community uh, and specifically the wrestling community that has helped them get to where they are. You know, that's, that's my thought. That's what I see, you know, and I've seen, you know, obviously we're, we're friends, you know, so I've known you for years and I've seen how much you've given back to the community. And I, and I know, you know, you had briefly mentioned it in the beginning when we first started talking here about your uh, youth before high school and how tough it was. And, and uh, unfortunately, you know, that, that, that's still prevalent today in our society, you know, and it's, I think we're lucky. Kids are lucky to have people like you and Mike, you know, guys that are really looking back and saying, Hey, let me give a hand. Let me pull you up to where I am. You know? Yeah. Well, Kevin, man, that's, you know, you came into my life my sophomore year and, and did that for me. You were the one teaching me about hard work and running and, and all those principles that still sort of lead my dance today. And, you know, our events are about giving back. I, always talk about do well by doing good. You know, nothing drives me crazier than driving through an intersection where you've got some kids standing there with signs saying, please donate money. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, have a car wash. We used to have to sell pizzas and hoagies. We had to go out and earn the money to go to wrestling camps and things like that. So we're going to we're gonna include a little bit of that, right? Because, you know, when you have t- the level of talent that we have coming, it does come with a cost. So we're going to give the, the athletes an opportunity to, to do little fundraisers some little online sales to, to sell go. some stuff to earn the money to go to the camps. They don't have to tap their parents for it. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a throwback. Hey, man, let's, let's, let's earn the money to be able to come to this thing, and we'll give them a clear path to do that. And, yeah, man, I think that with, with Vespa's business that he's created, it's just a, a tremendous business in general. And I think that this event, we don't know what's going to come out of it. Uh, but it's an opportunity to work with a smart young guy that I really like. And sometimes you just do something. And at the end of the day, something awesome happens that you never expected. And you go, well, that was worth it. And that's what I think we have here. It's just two guys working together to put something on that the kids are going to love. And if if, uh, if it helps Michael Vespa's business continue to grow, that's awesome because he deserves it. He's a very talented dude. But it's going to be fun, man. I think we can do well while we do good. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing, is there is there any way that people can get in touch with you directly what's the best way is that through social media or is it you have an email or how, how would yeah yeah i mean i'm 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 on facebook i'm on instagram pretty easy okay. to find you know zachary pierce or zachary st pierce um on instagram but yeah I, I mean i'm you know me kev i'm i'm always i'm easy to find and i'm always happy to talk to anybody that has any questions or they think if there's some some light I can shed on, on their current position that, that helps them advance. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, you know, my philosophy, Kev, is, is pretty simple. I like to keep an equal amount of mentees and mentors. <laughs> so I keep guys like you around who have been there and who have done it. And when I get into a spot where I need some guidance or I need to work through a challenge, I can, I can tap some of my mentors to help me do that. And, you know, at the same time, I like to you know, work with some young people where maybe my experience can help them advance and work through challenges they might have to reach their goals. So, I think if you keep that in pretty good balance, um, you know, the world aligns, right? The chi is all aligned. The, the vibes are good. <laughs> right, right. That's a great philosophy. Well, thanks a lot, Zach. I appreciate you you coming on and um, looking forward to, to seeing these uh, mini camps pop up and 
especially the first one on July 9th. So, yeah, man, well, keep doing what you're doing, Kev. This Philly wrestling's awesome. I, I, I think it's great what you're doing, and I'm always here to help. So, hit me up, buddy. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philly Wrestling. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment, subscribe, and stay tuned for more episodes. Until then, please enjoy Clementine, an original song from my favorite Philly band, Human Illusion.